Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Last week we began a series. I don't know where, I don't know how long the series will be. Uh, necessarily right now. I thought I thought I did, <clears throat> uh, but I don't. And uh, this is not a tip. Of, so those of you who may not be here, have been here for very long, or maybe this is your first Sunday. Uh, typically, uh, this is going to be a lot more teaching than it is preaching. I think, although someone in the first service came and said that wasn't just teaching. So I'll leave that to you. Uh, but every now and then a, a series comes along that must get into the DNA and help us to develop. It's, and I, so I do not want at the end of this series for us to say that was another sermon series. That is not the goal of preaching. The goal of preaching is for us to, wherever the, the entry point is or the on-ramp is, is to get on and to grow from there. And so my, my prayer is, is that the Lord would teach us not everything in a week because it's way too much, but that he would teach us and that it would actually get into the DNA of who we are and that it would help us to process our lives in Christ. And so uh, there is a lot of teaching in this series. And it's sometimes we can get fatigued by all of the new information and new processes. And I'm encouraging us to do that, as, as, in fact, to, to take copious notes and to write down verses of Scripture and to go back and to rethink a few things that we thought we already knew. I think it's healthy for us. I think it's in, interesting to do that, but I also think that it's healthy for us to do that. Now, I want you to hear me from the very beginning. I'm not teaching something new. I don't think that the church should. As you've heard me say this before, but we're looking for tried and true, not fresh and new, Right? Uh, tried and true. Churches start teaching new stuff, they're getting into danger. Uh, Jesus taught us all he wants us to know. We're just reframing some things so that it will give us life. Last week, I'm going to walk you through that quickly, we learned four primary things. The first one is that Jesus, and so write this down because I want you to go back and as you're reading the Gospels, I want you to rethink through this. Jesus did not dip into his humanity into his deity in order to live out his humanity. Jesus did not dip into his deity to live out his humanity. And, and many people may say, well, what about his miracles? Well, Moses did miracles. Lot, lots of folks did miracles. You look at Elijah did miracles, and Peter did miracles, and Paul did miracles. Nobody said, hey, they're God. No, what they said was, they are on purpose, and look at what God is doing through them. And so Jesus' miracles did not define him as God. It defined him as the Messiah, which was the whole thing. Look, any time that Jesus is presenting himself, that is how he is presenting himself as the one sent by uh, the Father, the one that is reconciling humanity to the Father, the Messiah. That doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't God. He 100% was God. But he cloaked that deity so that he could be, be our kinsman redeemer, so that he could understand humanity and die for humanity so that humanity might live. 
Okay, so that's the first thing. What about all the things that Jesus knew? I mean, 11 times Jesus knew what was in their heart. And, and that was asked of me this week. But what about these things? And I think of, of men like Nathan, who was able to look at David and say, you're the man, you did this. How many times in the Old Testament are unknown truths revealed to God's prophets? And ultimately we learn that Jesus is our prophet. He is our high priest and he is our prophet and he is our king. And so many of those things point to his messiahship or his purpose life, not necessarily he was divine, although he was 100% divine. The next thing that we see is that the resources that Jesus continually tapped into in order to live the perfect life, he has left us as a resource as well. Forty times in Scripture we find in every defining event in Jesus' ministry, Jesus moves himself away from the masses for personal time of prayer and communion with the Father. Prayer was absolutely monumental in the life of Jesus. So much so that these praying men who would pray, either uh, uh, th uh, wrote prayers or to the high priest and sacrifices, these men of prayer would come to Jesus and say, teach us to do that, right? Because Jesus removed the barrier that we had. We could not, with our sin, come into the throne room of the Father, but now we, we believe in the priesthood of the believer, that we have direct access into the throne room, and Jesus gave us that. So the prayer life that Jesus had, Jesus gave us the ability to have. What about the Word of God? Every time Jesus was tested, every time He was criticized, every time He was teaching, Jesus would use the Word of God in His teaching. Often you look at Jesus' messages and they go back to the Old Testament and He gives the full revelation of that. Every time He was tempted by Satan himself, Jesus would respond with, not because I said so, He would respond with, it is written, it is written. And Jesus had a, a, a litany where He knew all of it. Uh, of the Old Testament and knew every word that was to be included. And, uh, and the third thing that Jesus had was the, the Holy Spirit. The thing that removes the Holy Spirit from us now is sin. That's why men was dead spiritually is because they committed sin. Jesus wasn't born of man. He was born of woman, which means, and conceived by the Holy Spirit, which means Jesus had access to the Holy Spirit. So look, every time Jesus moved or looked, he was filled by the Spirit, moved in the Spirit, summoned by the Spirit, his life was in and of the Spirit all of the time. Now, you say, well, Jesus was sinless. That's right. But remember what we talked about last week. Jesus took his sinlessness and gave it to us. So when the Father sees us, he sees the Son. And so the, the, so the three primary resources that Jesus had in order to live was prayer, the Word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three things that Jesus has also given to us by way of the cross and the resurrection. Now, I know that you may be saying to yourself, still say to yourself, yes, but he was Jesus and I'm not. He was sinless and I'm not. That's true. That puts us way back. Our goal is not to be Jesus, right? Our goal is not to be Jesus. The goal is to have Jesus' life pouring through us, through us, not just into us. All right, so let's move on to number three. The third point was Jesus is our model for life and ministry. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And when we think about the things that Jesus told us, often think of uh, the very first thing we hear about Jesus in the book of Matthew. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? 
God is with us. The very last thing that Jesus said is, and I will be with you always, right? I mean, the gospel is bookended with the promise of God's presence by way of Jesus Christ. So not only is Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus is right here. Wherever you're seated, he's sitting right beside you. He is always with us. And he's always with us to remind us that he is always empowering us to carry out his life and his mission. The fourth thing that I believe we learned, we didn't talk, have a lot of time to talk about this, but because of all the negative self-talk that we do and, all, and our background, our, our, all of our origin stories, we underestimate what God wants to do in each and every one of our lives. Not for us, through us. I think a whole lot of times our Christian life is lived out in anticipation of what God wants to do for me. Much preaching in the last 40, well, since really the Great Depression 90 years ago has been what God wants to do for you. A whole lot of preaching started then about uh, heaven and what heaven was going to be. One day we'll be in a place where there is no trouble. And that is absolutely 100% true, but that's not a complete message. The complete message is the kingdom has already started when you said yes to Jesus Christ. The ministry work has already started right now. We are already seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. We are already joint heirs with him. His spirit already dwells in us and we have a ministry to perform. So do not underestimate what God wants to do through us, through us, not just for us. If we rest in what God wants to do for me, we'll end up just getting fat and sassy in our faith, right? We become the central focus of our, of our own story, of our own faith. But, but God wants to do things through us. And if we will open ourselves up as conduits, being used and allowing Him to use Himself through us, we will benefit. But so will every tribe and every nation. So the great commandment, is found in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, you turn over there if you want. We're going to be in several places today. And I'm going to try not to, to overwhelm. I, don't, I do not want to overwhelm. But I want us to be able to keep up. So um, this is just so important. And I say it's important because it's changing the way I, I think. And maybe that's important. In verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment? I mean, let's just... Let's just get to it. There are 930 some odd commandments in the Old Testament. So, you know, give us the big one. What's the one? Right? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, uh, the great and the first commandment. And so I, I want us to remember very quickly that as people who are in Christ, we are spirit and we are mind and we are body, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. That's actually a part of the soul. It's the, the heart is, is the passion of our life, what energizes us, what motivates us with our heart. But it is the central person. It is where we are sanctified, becoming like Jesus, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The soul is how we think. It's the processes by which our passions and our decision-making, our personality comes together to define who we really are. And to love the Lord your God with all your mind, that means the actual living it out 
and, and the saying yes to things. But the, the first three things all have to do with the center column of where we are being sanctified to becoming more like Jesus. But he said also with all your might, which, is, which occurs in our bodies, in our flesh. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking the summation of everything that God wants and he ultimately is saying, with the two things that are corrupted in you, love God with all of them. He doesn't say love the Lord your God with all your spirit because your spirit already loves God. You can, and sometimes people ask this question, can you love apart from God? And the answer is no. Oh, you can love according to your best definition of love. But God is love, and all love flows from Him. And I don't mean to be disruptive to the way you think, but because that is true, the only way that we can truly love with the love of God is to have our spirits reborn. And now we have the love of God pouring through our spirit into our personalities and out through our hands and our feet. Right? So Jesus says, because you are new creation, you must be saved. Because you are a new creation, you can love in the parts of yourselves that used to be corrupt. The parts that Jesus could love in that made him so much different from us because he didn't have a sin nature. And I'm not trying to say that we are the same as Jesus. By no means am I saying that. What I am saying is that he tells us that for us, the love the Lord your God with everything that is in you with the love that comes from God himself. Love God with God's love. So often we admire God. We appreciate God. We're thankful for God. We acknowledge God. But how does God love us? What Jesus is saying here is the greatest commandment is to love God the way God loves. I'll let you connect dots there. I'll let you decide if the devotion and the love and the passion and the decision making and the personality and the service that you provide, I'll let you decide if that love is the same as the way God loves you. Here's how you'll know if you love God. The second is like it. Verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people say, man, God is so arrogant. I've heard people say it. You probably have it. God is so arrogant to, de to demand and command worship and honor and praise. I mean, God is so arrogant to just expect us to do whatever he wants. But watch this. God does demand us to love him because, because you can't love apart from him. But what does God do? As a, the very first thing that God does when we tap into his love, he tells us to give it to other people. This isn't an arrogant God at all. This is a God who understands priorities. I want you to love other people, but you can't possibly love other people until you love me. So love me the way I love you. And here's how you'll know you'll love me, is love others the way you love yourself. So he also commands us to love ourselves. So love with the love of God, that's demonstrated best by the way we love others. 
That's demonstrated out of how we feel and think and process our identity in Jesus Christ. I know a lot of people who don't love themselves, and that's exactly the way they love their neighbor. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said we need to identify with his kind of love, love ourselves the way we, the way we are loved by him. And when we love ourselves, we are capable of loving, not just being loved, but loving others. This is so simple and so complicated. Let's move over to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> I want to draw these together because I think they were meant to go together. And then I'm going to tell you a story. It's a good one. Jesus uh, has now been crucified, resurrected for 40 days. Jesus has appeared to his disciples. Uh, let, me, let me stop for a second and give you a little bit of homework if you're writing notes down. We do not read the New Testament this way. But there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pretty much tell the same time period from Jesus' birth all the way up to pretty much the, uh, the ascension. Uh, they are called synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means the same. They're not exactly the same. They give different details. Sometimes they give a story that another one doesn't have or a miracle that another one doesn't have or details that another doesn't have to, to give us a complete picture, right? Because they had different uh, audiences. The writers had different audiences, and so the audience would be interested in different things. For instance, a, a, a Gentile audience would be very much you know, disinterested in some of the Jewish things. And so, but it's important to get it, you know, holistically. And the book of John is actually the gospel, but it's made up primarily of just the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, and so uh, the other writers, they don't necessarily eliminate that, but we really get some details in the book of John that we don't get in the synoptic gospels. So the first three are synoptic, the same. John is deeper just on the last week of Jesus. But they're all for the gospel. I say that to say this, because they are different in some degrees, it's really a great idea for us to come up with a, uh, and there is a tool, it's called the harmony of the gospels. And so write that down and let's, let's try to pour ourselves into that a little bit because I think that may be the way that after we read them individually, we can go back and, and read them completely and see the, really the pattern that Jesus lived his life by because it is so obvious when you read the Gospels in chronological order. I say, I say that because it is incredibly important for us to understand to go forward. So Jesus is, ascend, is about to ascend and in these 40 days, uh, Jesus appears to his disciples 10 times in those 40 days. We know that when we read each one of the Gospels in its uh, harmonic form. So 10 times, there are only one time that Jesus told them he was going to appear. Every other time he surprised them. Sometimes he met individuals, sometimes he met them as groups. This is the only time he told the women uh, at the, at the, uh, there at the very end, he said, go tell my brothers, that's incredibly important. I thought it was going to be for today, it'll be for later. Go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And so they go and they meet him in Galilee. When they get there, Jesus looks at them and he says these words. All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You remember the rule for the word all? Anybody remember? All means all and that's all, all means. That's right. How much authority is left over here? None. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, this is after the resurrection. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then he was taken up. It's a very, very interesting passage of Scripture, and there's a lot there for us to learn. In fact, there are two commands there, but there are three verbs. I'm going to break those down quickly for us. Two commands and three verbs. The first command is to make disciples. This single activity was the driving force of Jesus' breath. It's why he came was to make disciples. You'll notice that Jesus did not come to change the world. Jesus did not come to save the world. Jesus came so that he could pour his life in to make disciples that would make disciples. The goal of our life is not to be a disciple. It is to make disciples. Jesus called us to make disciples. And Jesus picked the very ones that God gave him to pick. He, he picked them. He poured into them for three and a half to four years. Within two years of Pentecost... The Bible says that you could not, well, I'm paraphrasing, but that the word of Jesus Christ was filled in every home in all of Jerusalem. What, what that means is, is there wasn't anyone that lived in Jerusalem that didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that they all accepted it. But it does mean that everybody in Jerusalem had heard about the Messiah, Jesus. That's really powerful. Within four years, in Acts chapter 5, we begin to get the picture that there were churches that were already planted by these 12 men. Churches that were already planted that were planting other churches within four years of, Jesus, of, the, of, the, of Pentecost. Eighteen years after Pentecost, it is said in Acts chapter 17 that these 12 men had turned the world upside down. 28 years, Colossians chapter 1. It said that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. 28 years, the whole world was beginning to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes a while to do that. It takes a while to do that. Within a few hundred years... We're moving from people hearing it to entire empires adopting it. The world is still being changed as people come into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for, for three and a half years, Jesus lived out the values. The purposes of Jesus' ministry wasn't to perform miracles or he would have traveled further than 100 miles from home. It wasn't even to preach. It wasn't even to teach. It was to give the disciples an opportunity to hear him teach. It was an opportunity for the, for the uh, uh, disciples to watch how he interacted with people. Not to heal people, but to watch him heal people. Begin to watch his motivation and to see that. Well, let's look here. So the commission continues with three 
verb forms. He says to them, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you to do. Which means that make disciples is you've watched me exclusively do this for you. Now do it. As I have been sent, so send I you. Go. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before. Go make disciples. Uh, we say go. You know, we, we really applaud missionaries and people that can adapt to cultures and go and give up their lives and their families and go. And, and I do appreciate that. That may be a part of it for, for many people. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Don't eliminate yourself from what God wants to do through you because you're not a missionary. Maybe you should be. Maybe you should be a church planner. Maybe you should be in full-time Christian work. I don't know what God has for you, but I know this verse doesn't apply. This verse, the word go, is actually in present tense, which means that it is always an active role. So make disciples, go and make disciples. In English, it should say, as you are going, which means as you are going to work, make disciples. As you are going to Little Rock, make disciples. As you are going to school, make disciples. As you are going in your neighborhood, make disciples. As you are going to class, as you are going, make disciples. How often in our life do we get so distracted? Crisis comes up, something gets in the way of our calendar, something gets in the way of our wants or our needs or our vacations, and we kind of throw a fit. But if Jesus Christ is going with us and He is always with us, empowering us to make disciples, I really believe that sometimes we get flat tires so that we can make disciples. Because sometimes we are so distracted on our calendar that we forget we're on His calendar. So everywhere we go, make disciples. Every distraction is on purpose. Sometimes I might need a little discipling in that moment. But everything about our life now is wrapped up in making disciples. You can resent it. You can actually even uh, push it away. But it, doesn't, it does not go away. The responsibility is there. So as you go, walk as Jesus walked, beginning to look. Listen, we've got to become very intentional about walking into a room and begin to think every moment of every day, how am I going to make disciples? These are the people I'm going to come into contact with today. How am I going to draw them closer to Jesus Christ? As we go, this is the... So, so as you are going is not an event. As you are going is a lifestyle. We have to say yes to that. We're already called. You don't have to ask yourself, am I called to make disciples? You are, and it's very unnatural. That's why Jesus said you're going to talk yourself out of it. A lot. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus said, all the authority has been given to me. And I'm going to be standing right beside you. What more motivation do we need? All of a sudden, this isn't about do I want to. This is about obedience. This is really, when the Bible talks about faith, this is where it's faith. This is, am I going to obey Jesus or am I not? So he ties all this together. The great commandment is to love God, to love God with the love that God loves us with, to move on then to loving our neighbor the way we love ourselves with the love that we've been loved by God with. How do I know if I love God? I love my neighbor. How do you know if you love your neighbor? Make disciples. It's the chief call to knowing if you love your neighbor or not. 
You remember the, the man came up to Jesus and said, but who's my neighbor? That guy? What did Jesus, I'm going to sum it up all of a sudden, but Jesus said, now your neighbor is whoever is in your way that has a need. That's your neighbor. But that's the wrong question. The question isn't who is your neighbor. The question is, who's a good neighbor? Who's a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? The question isn't about the man in the ditch. The story isn't about the man in the ditch. The story is about the most unlikely. That'll bring people from where they are to where the Lord wants them. It's unnatural. That's why I think Jesus promised us, number one, we'll have his authority. Number two, we'll have his presence. Go. Baptize. Baptism is so incredibly important. It's a critical element to throw down the spiritual gauntlet and say, I'm going to move from this side of walking and, uh, in the Spirit to this side. I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual difference. I'm not saying that it is salvation. Uh, I believe that man believes in his heart, confesses with mouth salvation. I believe that we, uh, that we are saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But when we are saved, the very first fruit of salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ by going through baptism and identifying with him in his death, his burial, and resurrection and making a public display and testimony that we are on Jesus' side of the spiritual battle. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, teaching them to obey. Every, everything that I've commanded you, and Jesus made over 400 commandments in the New Testament, in the Gospels. 400 things he told us to do. Over half of them, well over half of them, have to do with our disciple-making commands. Becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't... Uh, it doesn't mean that you've completed a curriculum. It doesn't mean you went through a tedious Bible study or have attended some church activity. It's a lifestyle of obedience. In fact, John chapter 15, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove it? We bear fruit. So let me show you this very quickly. Uh, I am uh, uh, going to demonstrate the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment, love God, love people. The Great Commission, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you all every step of the way, right? So love is our motivation, but our goal is making disciples. Jesus empowers us to do both. We just have to be willing vessels the hardest part about Christianity is learning to be selfless instead of selfish. So again, let me remind you, the Christian life isn't about what God wants to do for you. It's about what God is willing to do through you if you will simply say yes. That brings me to the second command in Matthew chapter 28. The second command is actually hidden from us in English, and that's not fair. But it is a little small Greek word. Oh, you see it. It just doesn't express itself appropriately. Most translations will say, lo, I am with you always, right? Some, some of your translations may say, behold, I am with you always. But the Greek word is idu, all right? You don't have to remember that. But it sounds just like something that a bride or a groom would say to each other on their wedding day. 
Now, this is Greek. This is not English, right? But it's a good way for us to remember what this word actually means. It means a faithful commitment. It means to pay very careful attention. It's actually a command for us to remember that Jesus is always with us and we need him desperately in every breath. When he says low, it just doesn't, it doesn't just mean a word that you know, God's going to be with us if we walk on the ground, not fly in airplanes. Uh, it means that he is going to be with us and we need to be cognizant every moment. Do not neglect the fact that Jesus Christ is with you. It is a command because you'll forget. You'll forget. Number one, you'll forget that he has all authority. So let me remind you. Number two, you'll forget why you are doing church work. Let me remind you. He is with us. He will empower us. It's not about you. It's all about his glory working through us. All right. I say all of that, and that's a lot to be said. But I want to give you a quick illustration. Uh, in John chapter 1, this is, uh, and I want you to go back and read, read this. I'm just going to paraphrase it for, for sake of time. Uh, but Jesus is, uh, is walking and he, he runs into a man named Andrew and the other man is unnamed, but we know that it's, it's John. Uh, John only refers to himself one time in all of his writings. He's, I don't know if he was humble or just cryptic, but he never called himself by his name. He just only would say another, another one of us. Uh, so Andrew and John were together. Jesus looked at Andrew. So John the Baptist is camped out there. John the Baptist has disciples too. When Jesus walks up, John the Baptist says, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. Now this is not at Jesus' baptism. This is a separate occasion. It's actually the last time John the Baptist ever saw Jesus that we know on record. When, G when John the Baptist says it, it says he says it to his disciples. Well, Andrew and John kind of get the notice they get up and they begin to follow Jesus. They're walking behind him, the Bible says. Jesus can hear them shuffling or whatever. And, uh, and he turns around and he sees these two men that have not been walking with him, walking behind him. And he does what just about any one of us would do. He stops and he says, what are you guys looking for? What do you want? Pretty much is what they're say he, say he says, what do you want? And they, I don't know if they're embarrassed I don't know if they're just awkward. But do you know what these guys say? Where are you staying? Where do you live? Now, picture this. I know this doesn't seem weird to you, right? But just picture this. Jesus is walking down the street. He stops and he says, what are you guys looking for? <laughs> just do this at Walmart today. Go to Walmart today and just walk up behind somebody and just shuffle behind them for a little while. And when they turn around and say, can I help you? Just say, where do you live? Okay? Just, just, see, how that, just see how that works. Where do you live? <laughs> I don't know how they said it, but that is a weird question to what are you looking for? <laughs> uh, so anyway, back to the story. Here's what Jesus' answer was. Come and see. Now listen, when you go to Walmart and you say, where do you live? And somebody says, come and see, you might want to walk the other way. All right? <laughs> come and see. This is the first call to these two men. Come and see. By the way, that's the first call to discipleship. Jesus already knew that the Father had given him men that he was going to be pouring his life into. And he identified these two are the most curious. They're following me. Here's the first, here's, here's the response to get people on the on-ramp in discipleship. Just come and taste. Just come and see. 
Just come and watch. Just come and evaluate. That's all. The Bible says that this was at about the 10th hour. Now, if he were using a Jewish clock, that would be 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which means he would have two more hours in the day. If it were the Roman clock, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. We don't know which one there it is, but for the balance of the day, the Bible says they went in with Jesus and they talked with him. I don't know if it was for six hours or if it were for two hours, but I know this. When Andrew came out, he, we have found the Messiah. So here's what I know Jesus immediately began to do. He began to break down all the prophecies and say, did you know that I'm from Bethlehem? Did you know that I lived in Egypt? Did you know that I, did you know, did you know that my great, great, great grandfather was David? Did you know that, da, 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 da. he worked them all the way through the Old Testament. And when they came out, Andrew said, we have found him. I'm going to go tell my brother, Simon. And so he runs to get Simon and John says, my brother James will want to hear about the Messiah. He goes and gets James. Simon is found first, brings him to Jesus. They begin to talk. Then John is, or James is there. And now all of us, here's four guys. They're all brothers, but here's four, four guys together. And then they all go and they get their friend, Philip. And they said, Philip, we have found the Messiah. And Philip said, I cannot believe it. Finally, Philip is walking. Uh, and in his hometown, and he sees his good friend Nathaniel, and he said, "Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth." Nathaniel said, "Jesus from Nazareth. There's nothing good that could come from Nazareth." You know what Philip said? "Come and see. Come and see." So you don't have to be like the the premier disciple to make disciples. Just invite people to the stage you're in. Come and see. Nathaniel said, okay, I'll call your bluff. So they say you're the Messiah. Jesus said, oh, here comes Nathaniel. He's the one in whom there is no guile, right? There's no deceit in him. Nathaniel said, hey, hey, how do you know that? I saw you praying under the fig tree earlier. That was so easy. You said, you believe me because I saw you praying? Oh, you're going to see better things than these, Nathaniel. Come and see. Often, this is the on-ramp for people. Come and see. Come and watch. Just come and taste. Listen, this is where a lot of Christians who have already understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the greatest launching place for us. By the way, there shouldn't be an empty seat in here. Because every one of us should have a come and see on our lips. The problem is, is that we have sealed ourselves off from unbelievers. All of our conversations about Jesus are with Christians already. We have sealed ourselves off from the darkness of the world. We don't want to make disciples. By the way, you know what? Disciples, the first step of discipleship requires them not to be a disciple yet. Listen, we are way too safe. We need to be out in the world listening to brokenness listening for emptiness, listening for problems. And when we are sharing about our life and people are hearing and they're seeing joy and they're seeing love and they're seeing peace and they're seeing forgiveness and they look at us and say, what is wrong with you? You're not like anybody else I know. You know what we should say? Come and see. Come and see. Just, just. That's how you can tell if God is drawing someone or not, if they're willing to come and see. If He's drawing them, they'll come and see, and they'll say yes. The problem, I think, for most of us is we're not listening to the world around us because we're not listening to the make disciples command. We're listening to my problems, what I want God to do for me. To make disciples.
Come and see. Come and see. The second commandment that Jesus gives them is, uh, well, believe it or not, if you read the harmony, you'll see it uh, of the Gospels, and there's probably several, I'm not sure, but uh, 18 months later, Jesus is walking on the beach, and he sees Andrew, he sees Peter, he sees James and John all on the water. They're fishermen, right? This is 18 months later. Jesus looks at them and he says, follow me. That word follow me means imitate me, walk in my dust, stand behind me and watch how I live my life. This is not the same meeting. Jesus actually calls Peter to three or four different callings. They're not the same. They're different. The first one was, you got emptiness? Come and watch me. And he has said yes. And so for a little over a year, Peter has been saved or at least believing that Jesus was the Messiah. But now it's time to follow me. Immediately dropped his nets and followed Jesus. This was a defining moment. This was a different call. Later, Jesus said, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now I'm going to give ministry away to you. The first call is you're going to watch ministry. The second call is you're going to make ministry. And the last call was in the garden when Jesus said, you will bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. What we have to do is we have to be sensitive to the spirit that's at work in us, Jesus beside us, authority over us, just listening to the world around us. What would Jesus do to bring people closer to himself? That's all. You don't have to be a spiritual hero to bring people in. What, one of the worst things that I think we can do and make disciples is when we know someone is lost is to beat them over the head with the Bible and tell them what they have to believe. We're starting them at the wrong stage. They may say yes to us because they feel burdened or threatened or bullied, but they're not going to last very long. No, no, the first stage for those that aren't Christians are just come and see. Come with me. Sit with me. The second, once they say yes to that, the second stage is, you know, Paul, what Paul say? You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Follow me. Because I'm following him. How many of us would be able to say that to someone who has said yes to Jesus? This is making disciples, is looking at someone and saying, you know what? Follow me. Let me give you some of my time. Let me give you some of my experience. I'm not the best, but I've been where you are. I think it's very important for us to see in Jesus' genius, he was able to identify where people were. And I think he gives that to us. We're just not looking. We see everyone as, are they Christians or are they not Christians? But the truth of the matter is, there are multiple stages to Christ-likeness. So when Jesus gets to the very finished, what did he say? I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is going to do. But I call you friends because I have shown you everything that the Father has given to me. And then the cross. So I want to encourage you this morning. Quit talking yourself out of ministry. Quit talking yourself out of relationships with people. You say, Pastor, I, you just don't know. I'm just not smart enough. Well, guess what? Get smart enough. I'm just not sensitive enough. Well, then be more sensitive. You just, I'm just too busy. 
then you need to create some margin in your life because this isn't about who should and who shouldn't. This is about obedience or disobedience. How do I know if I love God? Because I love people. How do I know if I love people? Because I'm making disciples. Because I love God, he said, come and see, I'm coming. Because I love God, he said, for me to follow him, I'm following him. He said, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And I'm going to talk about my faith. And he said, bear fruit. And I want to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. But because I love people, I want to invite people to come and see. I want to invite people to follow me. I want to give ministry away to people. And I'll find out all of a sudden that the fruit that he has called me to bear was not for me. The fruit I was called to bear is in the lives of people, in every pocket of influence that God calls me to walk into every day. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and thank you for your word, what it teaches us. And I just pray that today as we're continuing just to learn and just to unpack some things, but I, I pray for the practical application today is that wherever we are, Lord, may we be sensitive to seeing what you would do. May we take the call to make disciples as seriously as we take the call to salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would remind us of your authority and of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? We're going to sing. And last week I asked, I asked you to begin to pray, Lord, if you would teach me, I will learn. If you'll direct me, I will go. Um, and I want us to pray that same thing today. I, I want us to pray with intentionality and say, Lord, I'll, making disciples and talking to people about faith and talking to people about, man, I don't know that I understand half of these words in here. Here's the thing. Here's the greatest testimony in the New Testament, in my opinion. I don't know his name. I just know yesterday I couldn't walk, and today I can what a, what a tremendous testimony. I, I don't know anything about faith. I don't know anything about Jesus. I just know yesterday I couldn't walk, today I can walk. See? And I just think for us, God has put so many blessings, resources in our hands for us to neglect bringing other people into that and having those awkward moments You'll find out all of a sudden in those awkward moments how much you need Jesus. And in those awkward moments, you realize how much Jesus has already been a part of your life. He'll feel your mouth. He'll feel your heart. He'll give you wisdom. But first, you have to follow. So some of you are coming seers. It's great. Say yes to Jesus. That next, that next invitation is already there. Follow Jesus. Watch Him. Imitate Him. Some of you have already said yes to Jesus. It's time for you to turn what Jesus has done for you and allow that to work through you. And He will make us fishers of men. You don't have to worry about how to do it. He'll do it through you. Some of you are already willing to have Jesus on your lips. But let's make sure that we're giving our time and our energy and our resources to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit for His glory. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.